0: I want you to go with me for a minute on a little walking tour. I want you to go outside the church out here on the road, right at the corner of the property. And I want you to walk down the road and come up the driveway. <clears throat> as you come around the driveway, now I'm looking, and now, now your backs are turned, but as you're, <clears throat> as you're walking up the driveway, I want you to go around the edge of the, the new paved parking lot and you kind of cut right through the woods. It's kind of hard to do because there's woods there. Cut through the woods up to where the um, camping site is and walk around the whole perimeter of the camping site come back to the edge of the parking lot, and then walk around the edge of the property back to the corner of the road. Congratulations, you've basically just walked around the city of Jericho. Um, that's what it is. It's about nine acres. So we're thinking, how big is the city of Jericho? That's where we're going to be today, Joshua chapter 6. But I want you to get a sense for what what the city looks like and what, where we're at. So basically, the church property, give or take, you're looking at about nine acres of walking. That's how big the city is that these people are going to be walking around today. So we can turn to Joshua 6 while you're there, and we will read... Joshua, I'm actually going to back up a few verses. Pastor Joe last week finished in Joshua 5. I'm going to back up a little bit to pick up those last three verses because they're really uh, kind of an overlap into this chapter, and then read chapter 6 as well. So Joshua 5, starting in verse 13, reading through chapter 6. And as I did a few weeks ago, what I want to do this morning is sort of read the passage, talk about the story, kind of add some details in, and then go back and kind of consider the story to see what, what God has for us to learn. So I'm going to read Joshua 5:13 through uh, the end of chapter 6. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, "'Neither shall any word go out of your mouth "'until the day I tell you to shout. "'Then you shall shout.'" So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, While the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So that's that's our text for this morning. As you'll remember, we're in the, the book of Joshua. A few weeks ago, we spoke of the crossing of the Jordan River. So the people are now into the promised land. They're on the west side of the Jordan River. Last week, Pastor Joe preached on the sanctifying of the people. They had not circumcised. This generation had not been circumcised um, in the wilderness. Their parents had been an unfaithful generation, and they refused to follow God's command to circumcise the boys when they were eight days old. And so this had to happen after they'd entered the land so that they could be a covenant people, covenantally connected to the people of God and to God. And so this has just happened, and, and they waited until they had healed. It's hard to go into battle when you're recovering from surgery. And so now we find ourselves here at the end of chapter 5 when Joshua, the commander of God's earthly army, meets another man who is standing there with his sword drawn. And his, his immediate response is to ask this man, who are you? As you would do, are you a friend or are you a foe? Joshua seems to be very courageous. He's not concerned. The man's got a drawn sword and Joshua walks up to him. But then Joshua gets that, you know, you ask an either or question and you, get, you don't get the right answer. You get a, a yes question, Right. Um, so he says, are you for us or for our enemies? He said, neither one. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. You're, you're on my side. You're, you're, you're serving me. I, now I have come. I've come to give you your instructions. And Joshua then is told to take his, feet, his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. As Pastor Joe mentioned last week, this is the angel of the Lord, which we firmly believe is a appearance of the Son of God before he comes as a baby in Bethlehem. So we call this a pre-incarnate or before he came in the flesh. He came, there's these times in the Old Testament when he comes and he reveals himself in a physical form before he comes as a baby in Bethlehem. So it's, it's not right to call him Jesus because Jesus comes and he's born in Bethlehem, but it's right to call him the son of God. It's sort of getting ahead of ourselves to call him Jesus, but that's who he is. It's the second person of the Trinity. He comes to give Joshua his instructions. But notice when Jesus, when, well, there we go. When the second person of the Trinity, when the the son of God stands on ground, what does it do to the ground? It makes it holy. The nations are being driven out. Joshua is about to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and drive out and destroy the Canaanites because they have polluted the ground. It says in in Deuteronomy, their sins have polluted the ground and they are being forced out of the land. But whenever God comes, he makes the ground holy. There's a contrast between God and humanity. Wherever we go, we pollute things. Wherever God goes, he makes them holy. And that's why Joshua is told to take his shoes off, because as he stands there, he's standing on holy ground. And so that's there at the end of chapter 5, and Pastor Joe preached on that. It was at the end of that section there. But as we look at chapter 6, these, these, you have to remember these chapter divisions are not, are not inspired. They're put in there so we can find our way through the Bible. But as we look at chapter 6, really what we should see is that that first verse of chapter 6 is a parenthesis. It's a parenthesis between the the setting, which is Joshua standing there meeting the commander of the army of the Lord and Joshua getting instructions from the commander of the army of the Lord. When Moses was at the burning bush, he saw the bush burning. He was told, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, which which Moses then did. And then the bush, or a voice came from the bush and said, I am who I am. This is your instruction. This is what you should do. And so in that same similar way, the same way, joshua like moses gets his instructions from a pre-incarnate existence of christ takes off his shoes then receives his instructions now it's not to say that verse one is a parenthesis so we can just get rid of it because it's an important it's an important point it says jericho was securely closed up because of the children of israel none went out and none came in and so this is the scene Joshua's surveying the land. He wants to see, as a good commander would, what am I looking at? What, what's in front of me? What are my options? Up to this point, Joshua doesn't have any instructions. And if we'll think back, this isn't the first walled city Joshua's had to conquer. When Moses was still around, we get this little tiny verse hinted at it in Deuteronomy that they've already, Deuteronomy 3, verses 4 and 5, when they were on the east side of the Jordan, they already destroyed 60s cities of the king, 60 cities of King Og, they were called fortified cities with high walls, gates, and bars. This is not the first walled city they encounter. So Joshua, having gone through those art of the 60 cities and through ways we're not told how he does this. But this one, he's surveying the territory. You know, is there any, are there any weak spots? What, am I, what are we going to do? How are we going to attack the city? But he gets completely unexpected instructions from the commander of the army of the Lord, who says this in verse 2. He says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. Even before there's a battle, the battle's already over because the commander of the army has already given the the, the city into the hand of Joshua and the Israelites. And when Joshua goes forward with the Israelites, he's going to be following all the instructions that he receives. And we're going to run into some things that today in our society uh, are very critical, are raised as criticism against Christianity because Joshua and the Israelites go in and they kill men, women, boys, and girls. Completely wipe them out. But anything Joshua does, he's following the commanding the command of God himself. And so Joshua receives his instructions. And now we can kind of get into the, the, the story here. So the city of Jericho, we've already described how big it is. It's kind of roughly this property, the, the the church's property. But we need to understand somewhat of how it's laid out. And if, let me put a little blurb in here. If you get a chance even this afternoon, look up on, on the internet. There's a, a short 35-minute documentary called Jericho Unearthed. It is a phenomenal Christian analysis of the archeology span of Jericho that firmly gives, it, it, it's, an, it's amazing to see how the Bible fits with the, what they found there in, in their excavations of Jericho. Jericho unearthed, it's like 99 cents on Amazon. You may be able to find a pirated copy for free on YouTube if you can't afford 99 cents. Um, but anyway, Jericho unearthed. Um, I'm gonna describe some of this, but if you get a chance to watch that later, it will really flesh this story out for you better. So Jericho's a nine acres property around And as you approach the city of Jericho, you have a retaining wall. You know, a retaining wall, is a mound of dirt that's kind of designed there to hold back a a steep cliff. So you have a, a, there's this retaining wall that's about 12 feet tall. And above this 12 foot uh, retaining wall, there's a 12, um, there's a a mud brick uh, wall above the retaining wall that's about 20 feet tall. So there's actually, when you look at Jericho, there's actually an inner wall and an outer wall. So the outer wall is built on this retaining wall. So in other words, even if this wall falls, you still have 12 feet you've got to get to to get up into the city. So you've got this outer wall surrounding the outer city, which is nine, nine acres around. And then once you get past that outer wall, it's more of a, a hillside, and there's an inner wall that, that also is there. It's about 45 feet from the bottom of that wall to where the Israelites are down on the, on the, flane, the plains of Jericho. So as you're looking up at the city of Jericho, you're looking at an embankment that's fairly steep. With a wall on top of it that 's twenty feet tall, and then more of a, more of a hill, and above that is another higher wall, which is the, the the main wall of the city of Jericho. so keep that in mind inside this city there 's a spring, so it, people in Jericho don 't have to worry about water because they 've got natural spring source inside the city and If you remember that little clue we got from Genesis three, it said they came that Jordan overflows its banks at harvest time, so we know it 's harvest time so surprisingly, the Jericho people have bins and bins and pots and jars full of grain. So they're, they're set. If they'd come at any other time, maybe their supplies would have been depleted, but they're, they're stocked. They're ready to go. They've got all the security in the world that they, they could need. They've got it all there. They've got water. They've got food. They've got protective walls. They've got this fortress that they're inside of. And based on the best calculations, there's probably a couple thousand people. Maybe about 1,200 people live in the city, but about 2,000 people, the outside people from the surrounding areas would have gone in for protection and safety, knowing that the Israelites were coming. So, this is the wall, this is the city that Joshua's up against. What about the people? What kind of people are inside the city of Jericho before Joshua begins to go in there? Let's read from uh, Leviticus, turn back to Leviticus chapter 18. God's going to tell you this is not God wiping out the Canaanites because this is genocide or, or some kind of ethnic cleansing. That's what it's referred to today, but never believe that. Don't take that as a as an excuse or a, um, an objection to Christianity. God is wiping out people because they are wicked, not because they are a certain race or color. So in Genesis eighteen, it says in verse three, "This is God, way back in the book of Levit- Leviticus, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt." where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And I'll jump down to verse 21. These are some of the things that these people in Canaan, these people in Jericho are guilty of. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, which is an idolatrous God, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, and you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. This is what the Canaanites were doing. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become um unclean, and the land is unclean. The commander comes and makes the land holy. These Canaanites have made the land unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, because the people of the land who were before you did all of these things so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So Israel is just as likely to be kicked out of this land as these Canaanites are if they start acting like Canaanites. And one other section in Deuteronomy chapter 12, another description of who these people are that Joshua's dealing with. These aren't like, you know, primitive people who just, they just try to get along. They don't know the true God, but they're ready to worship him whenever they get the chance. If somebody would just tell us who God is, we'll come and worship him. These are just, these are, these are Romans one kind of people. If you read, if you know Romans one, these are uh, having become fools, uh, God turned them over to their own depravity. Deuteronomy 12 verse 29. When the Lord, your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go into possess and you possess, dispossess them and dwell in their land. Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, so that I can also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. This is what's going on, if not directly in Jericho, and among the Canaanites around them. We need to understand just how wicked and vile we, we, we live in a depraved, corrupted society today, 2022 here in America. We're, we're sickened by what we see. But this is not the first time around. This world continues to rebel against God. It's left to itself, every, if, even when given mercy and grace, people abuse God's mercy and grace and indulge in sin. And it goes on and on and on. But God, God there's that limit. The, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is now full, and God's judgment is coming. So this is who the Israelites are about to approach Getting back then to Joshua chapter six, God gives instructions as he tells them to march around the city, all the men of war, which we know is about 600,000 men, all the men of war. And they're to do it six days, one time around the city. So we're talking maybe half mile to a mile. This is not a long, you know, walk around red line kind of thing. This is nine acres. This is, a, this is not a hard task to do. Um, but then as the army marches, I'm sorry. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And we know the story: when they when they make the blast with the trumpet, you hear the sound. The people shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Now I'm wondering how Joshua responded to this, as he's hearing that the wall of the city is going to fall down flat. He just promised Rahab that she stuck a little cord out her window, on the wall, that she be kept safe. So there's a little bit of tension in this passage. And Joshua's just, his heart might start pounding a little bit more, wondering how in the world how am I going to keep my promise to Rahab? She's on the wall. I told her she'd be safe if she stayed in the house. Of all places, she should be out of the house and the walls fall. But I'll do what you say, Lord, and I'll put that in your hands. So then Joshua comes, and he basically gives those same instructions to the people in the next few verses, which we won't read. We already, we already read that. So basically summarizing what God had told him to do. And so when we get into some of the, the actual action of the day, when, God begins to, when Joshua begins to put this plan into place. And that picks up in verses 8, chapter 8 through verse 21. Joshua 6, 8 through 21. So the people begin to gather. So around the city, we should, we should put in our mind's eye, we should see armed men, followed by seven priests who have ram's horn trumpets, followed by the Ark of the Covenant, followed by some more armed men behind it. And we're talking about 600,000 men walking around nine acres. This is, this is a lot of people around a little tiny city with a couple thousand people inside. And all, but yet all they're doing is walking around it. But as you, as you study this, as we look at this, we can see more, we don't see so much pictures of military here. We see more things of, of sacrifice and priesthood emphasis in this passage. We see an emphasis on the priesthood. We, well, later we'll, get to a, we'll talk about what it means to be devoted to destruction. And the city's going to be burned with fire. So the imagery here is less of a military campaign and more of a sacrificial offering to God of an entire city as, uh, as a tribute to him and as, his, as he comes in judgment. So the, the priests are there. They're going to blow their trumpets. And we, we could get into why there's seven and all. There, there, there's just so much to cover in a short period of time. I won't do that. But uh, we know we've got seven priests and they have seven trumpets of ram's These are the trumpets they would have blown to announce the year of Jubilee. And that's actually what the, the word is, Yobel, is not actually the silver trumpets that they would have had to proclaim military action, but actually these ram's horns, which they would have used more in their worship than in, in their celebrations, than in their military campaigns. And so the men begin to do this, days one through six. Let's, 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 let's walk around the, the city of Jerusalem, or Jericho one time with these priests and, and the people. So they get up in the morning, they get in their formation, and they start to walk, but they can't say a word. They've got to remain silent the entire day the entire trip around the city. And again, it's not going to take them all day. Uh, it's you know, How long does it take an armed group of men to walk around the city one time? I mean, a couple of hours by the time you get all the logistics worked out. So they get up in the morning, you go around the city, you go back to camp, and you just hang out for the rest of the day. Day two, you get up, walk around the city, you go back to bed for the rest of the day, or, or, or when you get back, back to the camp. And so we re- 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 repeat this for six days, verses eight through 14. But then on the seventh day, this when we really get into some, the, the, the heart of the story. Um, and I hate to say that because there's, there's more to be said about those other verses. that just for lack of time. We can't do that. But in, in, on day seven, let's pick up in verse uh, 21. I'm sorry, verse 15. Joshua 6 and verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day. They got to go around seven times today. And marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. The only one spared will be Rahab and those in her house. And so the people do that. We jump down to verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went right up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So how did the walls fall? Why did the walls fall? You know, is this... And, and we live in a skeptical age. Many people will doubt. This couldn't have happened. You study archaeologists today, they misdate it. They say, oh, the city didn't even exist by Joshua's time. The Egyptians had knocked it down before Joshua even got there. So it was really easy for them to take it. Anything we can do today to fight against the supernatural... But if, if, you can get, if you can get Genesis 1-1 in your mind, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth from nothing, then you don't have a problem with the supernatural. No. Any miracle that happens, anything that happens, we can if you If you can believe Genesis 1-1, everything else in the Bible is easy. God's made it all and he's got the right to do with it as he chooses according to his good and perfect will. So how do the walls fall? Was there a perfectly timed earthquake? Well, Jericho is in a very earthquake prone area. They still have earthquakes even up until this day. So perhaps it was an earthquake, but if it was, it was a perfectly timed earthquake that happened exactly on the seventh time around, exactly when they blew the trumpets, exactly when this happened. So there's a miraculous event that's happening, even if we can't say whether God just spoke and the walls fell. But what's fascinating is that when you read, it says, when the walls fell down flat, and the Hebrew actually says, the walls fell down beneath themselves. And this is where that video will really bring it out, because what's basically happening is that outer wall is collapsing right next to the retaining wall, So now they don't have a a ramp. Now they have a ramp to get right up over that retaining wall and to get up into the city. And that's what they found in their archaeological digs, a pile of mud ricks at the base of a retaining wall. So God had not only made the wall fall down so they could get past it, but let them get up over that first 12-foot retaining wall so they could get into the city. And the people had to go up into the city because the city's raised. And so these little details, somebody who was there knew this story well. This isn't somebody... 100 years, 500 years later, writing a story saying, Well, you know, how do we think the people captured Jericho? Somebody was there. Somebody, who, somebody who, was, who could say, Rahab lives among us to this day. That's how we know that the story is true. The archaeology bears it out. The people went up into the city. And so the priests, that, that's, when, that's when it all falls. Up to this point, God's done everything. The people have just walked around the city, kept their mouth shut, didn't say a word, so that they couldn't get any glory. And now the walls have fallen, and the people go up. And this is when they have to do something that perhaps they don't want to do. And that is where in verse 21, it says, They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. It's just one little verse. And I'll get back to this later. It doesn't even say that they killed. It just said they devoted all to, the, all to destruction with the edge of the sword. Sort of a backwards way or a kind of an euphemistic way of saying it. But there's a specific reason that that's spoken in that way. Devoted to destruction is a key word that we'll look at in a few minutes. They devoted to destruction. They killed young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. This is not a a pretty sight. Use your imagination. Listen. What what sounds do you hear? What sights do you see? When an entire nation, 2,000 people, small city-state, is being destroyed by hundreds of thousands of people with swords. The screaming, the noise, the animals... The blood, things flowing downhill. If it's a raised city; things are gonna be flowing downhill. It's a messy, ugly sight. In a sense, Jericho, being on this raised elevation, is almost like an altar with blood running down, and it's gonna be burned. And that's Joshua following the commands of God. This is not Israel going on the warpath. Israel doesn't do this to every city. Israel told not to do this to some cities, especially the outlying cities. But the cities in Canaan, they're supposed to do this too. But then Joshua says to the people, he says, but go to the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and those who belong to her as you swore to her. In God's providence, he kept Rahab's house standing. The rest of the wall fell, but her house stood. And And God keeps his promises through Joshua. His promises are kept to save Rahab. So Rahab is saved, but Jericho is burned. Rahab is brought to the people of Israel, Now, at first, she's left outside the camp, which is actually a pretty significant term, again, for another day. They're not immediately brought into the camp of Israel because they're still unclean, they're Gentiles. Eventually, she'll be welcomed into the camp. But for now, she's left outside. But they burned everything that was in the city. Everything burnable was burned. They only saved the silver, the gold, and the bronze, and the iron. And they were saved and set apart for the temple, the future temple, the tabernacle of the Lord. Again, if you were to... The, the, the archaeologists who've dug in the city of Jericho to this day, when they got down to the right layer, they found three feet of ash and debris. And in that ash and debris, they found clay pots full of grain. And there's pictures of that you can see today. They burned... Any conquering army would want to take that grain because it's a commodity they would, they would use it to buy and sell. It wasn't just food to eat, but it was cash crops in a sense where you could use that for trading and for, for, for commerce. But Joshua and the people obeyed God... And as far as they know, they've never found another city that was under siege like that, where they found jars full of grain. But they found that in Jericho, because that's what God had told the people to do. And he said, you will, I'll provide for your needs, but burn this city. And they did. But then we have this little interesting verse at, at verse 26. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. God does not want the city rebuilt. He has devoted it for destruction. It is his city, and he does not want it rebuilt. But, but this humanity, the humanity doesn't listen real well to God. 500 years later, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 16. 500 years later, during the, the reign of a wonderful king named Ahab, Um, when everybody was following the Lord and and worshiping Him and not worshiping false idols. And at 500 years after Joshua pronounces this curse, we read this verse. 1 Kings 16, verse 33. And Ahab made a wooded image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with the death of Abiram, his firstborn. And with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. 500 years after Joshua pronounces a curse, somebody tries to rebuild Jericho, and he loses his oldest and his youngest sons. God's word, even if it's been a long time, 500 years. There's no way God's going to keep his promise. 500 years, forgotten, over and done with. I can get away, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm probably pretty safe to build the city of Jericho again. Don't try it. God keeps his promises for good or for ill, no matter how long a, time, a period of time has transpired. And we see that happening. And then the last verse of 27, it says, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. If you recall a few weeks ago, when we looked at Joshua three and four, God said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you and he did. Joshua 4, God kept His promise in Joshua 4 after they crossed the, the Jordan River just weeks before this event here in Jericho. Joshua 4.14, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Joshua, you would not expect that the end of Joshua's defeat of Jericho, that Joshua would be the one singled out for praise. You would think Israel was the one whose fame went out through all the land. You might even think it was Yahweh's fame that went throughout the land. But no, the recorder of Joshua says it was the fame of Joshua that grew and began to spread throughout the land. Again, God is exalting Joshua. God is setting forth this leader as the successor to Moses, the one who can be be trusted and followed, and the one that God will keep his promises to. It wasn't just that his fame was spread throughout the land, but it says the Lord was with Joshua. In Joshua 1, verse 5, God had said, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And again in verse 9, The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So this is the story that we're going to be working with in the next few minutes that we have to consider what are we supposed to make of all this? And we could say, do you have any Jerichos in your life? Do you have any big walls that you need God to knock down? Well, trust God and God can do it. That would not be a completely invalid application, but that's not what the story's in here for. The story's in here, we can look at verse 17 of Joshua 6 for two points that we can look at today. Why is the story in here? Joshua 6, verse 17. Verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. But Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Why is this in here? We learn two things. God judges sin and God saves sinners. God judges sin and God saves sinners. And don't let us forget that. First, God judges sin. God said, I have given the city of Jericho into your hand. And Joshua says, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And I want to use just a few minutes to give you a Hebrew word today. It's harem. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. My, my Hebrew is a little rusty. H-E-R-E-M, if you want to write that down. That's how we would spell it in English. But it's a Hebrew word that's often translated as devoted things, devoted to destruction, or accursed things. The word harem, we would have a hard H sound like the word like Loch Ness Monster. We would have a hard H sound at the beginning of that. H-E-R-E-M, the word harem, <clears throat> to devote to destruction or the accursed things. And that is a sense that something is set apart for God's special use and not to be used by anybody else. In Leviticus, God talks about things that are dedicated to him, and that's the word kadosh, or the word for sanctifier, set apart. But he also, in that same passage, talks about things that are harem, or harem, which are things devoted to destruction. So you've got things that somebody can set apart for a special reuse for a special reason. And those things, God says, they can be redeemed. That's Leviticus twenty-seven. if you want to look that up later. Those things, things that have been sanctified or set apart can be redeemed. But things that have been haremed or devoted to destruction, they cannot be redeemed. They must be destroyed. If it's a physical thing, it must be burned. If it's a person, it must be killed. These are things that are set apart to God. When Israel came into the land in Deuteronomy 20, God says, those cities that are on the outlying, those that are not immediately in your territory, that are on the outliers, you can come first to them to make peace with them and offer them peace. And if they're willing to make peace, then you make peace with them. But he said, for all the cities that are in Israel itself, that are in your promised land, you may not make peace with them. Let me read Deuteronomy 20. We can turn there for just a minute. I want you to see, because God judging sin, this is God's initiative. This is what God is doing. He's setting these things apart for himself for judgment. He already, God's a God of mercy. He's willing to give peace and salvation to those who, uh, who will come to Him, but He has already marked out these cities in Israel's territory, as those who are unrepentant and will not come, and so now He's giving them the, 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 their their time. Their 400 years of of mercy is over, but in Deuteronomy 20, I want to read verse 16. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. That's our word harem right there, devote to complete destruction. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. You do this, I'm commanding you now, so that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so make you sin against the Lord your God. So God, in Deuteronomy 20, gave instructions to Moses. He said, when you get to a city inside of Israel, inside of Canaan, you don't make peace with them. You devote them to destruction. They do not have their their time for repentance is over. Just like God sending the flood. In in, in Noah's day, God used the flood to destroy the people. In Joshua's day, God's going to use his people to destroy wicked people. But still, it's God's initiative. God's just using a different means. But this this idea of devoting to destruction, it's a biblical principle. This is not genocide. God destroys... The Canaanites, but saves Rahab. But in our next chapter, we'll find out that God destroys an Israelite named Achan because he takes of these devoted things. So God's choice of who he's going to kill is not marked out on your race or ethnicity. It's marked out on how you relate to him. Are you a repentant sinner or will you refuse to receive his mercy and grace? But this principle of God judging sin, like I said, it's like Jericho's a burnt offering. We may think of it as the first fruits of Canaan, offered up to God as a sacrifice. So what then do we take away from this idea of God judging sin? Consider that the people of Jericho took shelter, but they looked in the wrong place. The people of Jericho took shelter from the wrath of God, but they looked in the wrong place. They put their trust in their buildings, in their walls, in their supply of food and their supply of drink. But when God wants to come at your false gods, your gods will vapor, will vanish in the wind. Do not put you, you, you sitting here today, do not put your hope in a lesser God they will fail you in time. There is no escape if you put your shelter in the wrong place. If you put your hope in the wrong place, it will fail you in time. It may take a while. It may not be today. If you put your hope in money, it will fail you. If you put your hope in health, it will fail you. If you put your hope in, in your, your arsenal, your, uh, your preserved food in your basement, or your, your stock of ammunition, whatever it is, you put your, your hope in that, it will fail you in time. Your only hope to escape God's judgment is to put your trust in him. Do not take shelter in the wrong place. God will bring judgment. Secondly, this is just a hint of what's coming in the end. God destroyed men, women, children, the old, the young. What we see in Jericho is just a hint of what God is going to be bringing at the end times. This is just a small hint. And if we don't grasp this, we won't have that, that holy dread, that holy fear of God. Children who are listening today, think of little children at Jericho being killed with swords. I don't mean to scare you, but this is in the Bible. We need to understand this. Do not put your hope, do not put your trust in, well, I'm, I'm a little kid and I can have a rebellious heart. It's okay. God doesn't care. God does care. God will hold you to account. Do not think that because you're a child, you will escape just because you're a child. Do not think that you're going to wait until you grow up to be a Christian when I'm an adult or a teenager or something, don't put your salvation, your, your dealings with God, do not put them off. God is a God of mercy and long-suffering. He put up with the Amorites for 400 years, but it finally did come. But God not only judges sin, the first part of 17, but God offers and brings salvation. John, uh, verse, the second part of 17. In the midst of this wrath, he remembers mercy. He spares Rahab. Joshua 6 and verse 17. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Joshua saved, verse 25, we even read specifically, it says, Joshua 6:25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household, and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. Joshua saved alive, not because or be, in spite of her ethnicity, but because of God's mercy and her faith. And she is held up to us in Hebrews 11:31, as as an example of our faith because she let in the spies. Even in his destruction of wicked nations, God still saves some, and he hints at us in the old covenant of his future ingathering of the Gentiles in the new covenant. But could I encourage you, don't overcomplicate salvation. Some of us, I may may have been guilty of this as a parent. I grew up in a church that just, just pray the prayer, just walk the aisle, this sort of thing. It's so easy. And yes, it is easy in a sense. But I saw a lot of false conversions. There was a lot of misunderstanding about what salvation was. And so I think in the process of trying to spare my kids that false understanding of salvation, I think I made it too hard. (laughs) But what did Rahab know? And what did Rahab do? She knew she was in trouble. She knew God's wrath was coming. And she acted upon that faith. That's all she needed. She didn't know a whole lot about the God of Israel. But she knew he was a God who kept his word. She knew he was a God who brought wrath on his enemies. And she reached out and she said, help and the only way I know how to reach out for help is to save God's messengers and spare their lives. And God says that was, James says, that is a work that proves that her faith was true. So don't overcomplicate salvation. Are you afraid of the wrath of God? Are you afraid of his judgment? Then run to him. That's all you need to do. That's all you need to do. But to bring this to a close, we looked in verse 17. The point of this passage is that God brings judgment, but God brings salvation. But I want to ask for a few minutes. Who is it that does these things? Who brought judgment in this passage and who brought salvation? It's Joshua, the son of Nun, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. Joshua is marked. Joshua was the one who brings judgment on Jericho. If you notice the instructions he received at the beginning of the chapter, God does not tell him to devote the city to destruction. Why does Joshua devote the city to destruction? Because he likes to devote things to destruction or because he thinks he's going to make an offer to God? This is a good idea. God, I'm going to burn up Jericho because it's a good thing to do. No, it's because God said, Joshua, don't let the law depart from your mouth. And Joshua remembered that back in Deuteronomy 20, God had told Moses, when you come into these these cities in Canaan, devote them to destruction. So Joshua is the human agent for executing God's judgment and wrath on the city of Jericho. So Joshua is that human agent, Joshua the son of Nun, who devotes the city to destruction. And he does that. The time has come for judgment and destruction. But as we just read in verse 25, God only, Joshua not only declares or brings down this judgment on Jericho, but Joshua brings salvation to Rahab. That's specifically laid out in verse 25, and it says Joshua saved Rahab alive. Joshua was credited with saving Rahab. We know it was through the spy's promise, and we know it was through God's mercy that he kept the walls up, but Joshua is the one who saves Rahab, who was alive. Why do I emphasize this? You might have noticed that the bulletin was called Joshua Meets Joshua, which may seem like a strange title for a sermon, but that's what's going on here. At the end of chapter 5, Joshua meets the pre-incarnate Son of God. We know that the Son of God, before he came at Bethlehem, was, showed up in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. I want you to turn to Hebrews 4, verse 8. Hebrews 4, verse 8. The writer of Hebrews is talking about this time period of the entrance into Canaan. He talks about rest and giving people, God's people rest and how Joshua symbolized bringing rest to the people, but that it was not the ultimate rest that God was talking about, that there's a rest that remains for the people of God. But I want you to read Joshua, or Hebrews 4, verse 8. <clears throat> and it says in Hebrews 4, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. And I want to key on the word Joshua there. I have to do a little bit of... Greek language here, not hard, but we miss something in English that's profound that we miss, that the, that the Greeks and the Hebrews didn't miss. The word "Joshua" there, if I were to say that in Greek, it would say it would be the word "Jesus. It would says, "If Jesus had given them rest, then God would not have spoken of another day. See, the reason we call Jesus Jesus" is because the Greeks couldn't say Joshua. And so when you read in Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. That's not what Joseph and Mary heard. They heard, you shall call his name Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. The man we know, the God-man we know is Jesus. We only know him that way in English. The Greeks and the Hebrews knew him as Joshua. It wasn't Jesus that died on the cross. It was Joshua. It was the same man, but by a different name that we know him as. And I don't say this to confuse you. I say this to try to bring clarity and to try to bring out some of the richness that God has communicated to us. God said to Joseph and Mary, you shall call your baby, let me say it, it says Jesus, but the same Greek word is used here in Hebrews 4, so that's why we know it's the same name, even though it's interpreted differently. If you have an old King James, it actually says, "For Je- if Jesus had given them rest, it says in the old King James in verse 8, because the translators of English knew that the word was Jesus there. But you, you've heard people say, you know, the, the Hebrew, like, do you believe in Yeshua? That would be the Hebrew, that would be the way we say it today. But unless you use the word Yeshua for Joshua of the Old Testament and Jesus the Savior, you're going to miss this deep, profound connection. His name is Joshua. Our Savior's name is Joshua because he saves his people from their sins. Yahweh means, Yahweh is salvation. That's what his name means. But Joshua, the son of Nun, is not just he, he is. He's a real person who lived in the Old Testament. But just like Melchizedek prefigured and was a picture of Christ, so Joshua, the son of Nun, is a picture of Joshua, the son of Joseph and Mary. If you miss this connection, you miss a rich blessing that God has for us. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, it said, he said, starting in Moses and all the prophets, he told them all the things in the scriptures that were there concerning himself. And God in the Old Testament gives us these little pictures of himself, of of, of the Son of God who will come. So Joshua, son of Nun, meets Joshua, who's not yet been born in Bethlehem, the son of Joseph and Mary, back in Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, in Joshua chapter 5. If you were to study the life of Joshua, son of Nun, and try to see parallels and similarities between Joshua or Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary, you would see that there's a lot there. You see that both of their ministries, I, spoke, I, I touched on this very briefly, and I don't have time to go into it much today. But I touched on this briefly a few weeks ago, that both of their ministries really begin there at the Jordan River. They're both successors to Moses in a sense. They both lead their people into the promised land. Joshua into an earthly promised land. Jesus, the greater Joshua, Joshua the son of Joseph and Mary, into the, the heavenly or the eternal promised land. Look at the last verse I want to look at this morning is the end of chapter 6. Because again, even in this, I see, I see pictures of our Savior. A few weeks ago, I had a chance at another church to preach a whole sermon on Joshua five thirteen to 15. I'm trying to fit that and all this in together, so I have to abbreviate this, but there's more that can be said. But to summarize it in Joshua six twenty seven, it says, The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Where else can you think of somebody's fame going out into all the land? That phrase, that terminology, that that idea, that doesn't show up a whole lot. That's said of David, it's said of Solomon, and it's said of Jesus. The fame of one of God's people, one of God's leaders, one of God's chosen one, who spreads out into all the land. In this, in this verse, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the land. We see that so many times in the life of Jesus. In Matthew 4.24, it says, Jesus healed, and his fame went out throughout all Syria. In Matthew 9.31, two blind men are healed, and they spread his fame in all that country. In Matthew 14.1, here it hears of the fame of Jesus. This isn't a Da Vinci code. This isn't looking for uh, in-between-the-line stuff. Many of us can see these hints of Jesus in the life of Joseph, but these hints of Jesus are all throughout the Old Testament. These hints of Jesus are all throughout the Old Testament. If we, look, if we start to look for them, we'll find them why of all the names that God could give given the son of God when he came in human form, that he give him the name of Joshua? And I want you, I, again, I want you to make sure we establish this. This is not creative uh, playing with numbers or playing with languages. It's simply the fact that the Greeks could not say the word Joshua. And the English translators didn't say Joshua because they could say Joshua. Instead, they just translated. They went from Yeshua in Hebrew to Yesus in, in Greek, and the English people put that into, turned that into Jesus. Um, but we really need to see this connection. There on the plains of Jericho, Joshua the son of Nun meets a greater Joshua who's still to come. We see in Joshua the son of Nun hints of our Savior, but he's imperfect. He's about ready to, do, to make a big blunder with the Gibeonites. He doesn't answer counsel of the Lord. He's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He's a sinner who needs a Savior himself. But in many ways, we get that sense of the coming Savior who will come and save us from our sins. And so I trusted this morning as we've looked quickly at this passage that you get the sense that in the story of Jericho, we see two things that God's judgment will come, even if it's held off for a long time, and God's mercy is there for those who will receive it. And it's not hard. It's not complicated. Come to him in faith. If you see yourself in danger, come to him. And the means by which both God's judgment and his salvation come are through this greater Joshua that we look forward to. He offered himself on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that we did not have to perish like these Canaanites. But he will come again and all judgment has been entrusted to him. And when he comes again, even if it's 500 years from now, just like that skeptic back in Ahab's day, he said, God's not going to keep that 500-year-old promise. Even if his promise is long in coming, be sure that it will. And our Joshua will come again and he will judge all the wickedness that we see, and he will take us to be with himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time